Chapter 9 of Charles Simeon by Handley Mole. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Henry Martin and Other Friends. I come to some account of Simeon's Indian chaplains. Looking back from the year 1829, he writes in a private paper Almost all the good men who have gone to India as chaplains these forty years have been recommended by me. This was not a vainglorious boast, it was a plain fact, recorded with surprise and thankfulness. Unlikely as it seems, Simeon was able, for nearer fifty than forty years, to exercise a strong influence on the East India Company's choice of chaplains, and that long opportunity he used with an insight and a faith which alone might entitle him to the name of a great man as well as a good one. If I gather up the scattered facts rightly, his friend David Brown, mentioned above, was one of the first links in this chain of circumstances. In 1786, Brown had sailed for India as a company's chaplain, not, so far as I am aware, because Simeon had advised his going. But he went as a devoted pastor, and could not possibly view with indifference the shepherdless millions of Bengal, and he went as Simeon's friend. At Calcutta he found a Christian coadjutor in Charles Grant, and so Simeon's name was soon familiar in Grant's ears. Grant, returning to England, as we have seen, took his place among the directors of the company at home, and finding some kindred souls among his colleagues, made them also acquainted with the Cambridge clergyman's character, and prepared them to look to him for able and earnest chaplains among his disciples at the university. One of Simeon's first recommendations carried a name now forever memorable in Christian history, the name of Henry Martin. For Martin's own sake, and for that of his inseparable connection with Simeon, we must linger a little over his life and character. Henry Martin was born at Truro, February 18, 1781, and baptised in the Church of St. Mary, now the cathedral, where he is registered as the son of John and Elizabeth Martin. John Martin, early in life, had been a working superintendent in the mines at Gwenop, but he had risen by methodical industry and self-education to be chief clerk in a merchant's office in Truro, with an income more than competent. His children were many, but all died quite early, save four, two sons and two daughters. Henry was the third child of these four. The younger of these two sisters is often mentioned in his memoir as exercising a strong religious influence on him during his college life. She was in Christ before him, and prayed unweariedly for him, at a time when he was indifferent to the highest things. At school he had a good classical training, and he was known there as clever but not diligent, usually very cheerful, high-spirited, and sometimes passionately angry. He made one good friend at school, an older and stronger boy, known to us only as Kay, for John Sargent, the writer of Martin's delightful memoir, never gives us more than his initial. Henry Martin competed for a scholarship at the Oxford Corpus Christi, but failed, and his father entered him at St. John's College, Cambridge, as a pensioner or unassisted student. Kay had gone up there before him, and was his best friend at college as at school. I have heard from a distinguished veteran clergyman, to whom it was told long ago by a friend, once Martin's teacher at Cambridge, a story which would defy belief if it had not such a direct tradition. It was that when the Cornish lad, arriving at St. John's in October 1797, was examined in his school acquirements, his classics passed muster well enough, but so total was his ignorance of mathematics that the first proposition of the first book of Euclid quite baffled him. 
Such at last was his mental despair that he was on the point of leaving Cambridge. It was actually as he went to take a place in the coach, which started from the hoop, the famous inn where Wordsworth had alighted just ten years before, that the geometrical mystery opened itself to him. However, he quickly made up these very long arrears. In January 1801, in a year of high calibre, he was senior wrangler and first Smith's mathematical prizeman. Woodall of Pembroke came next to him in both these distinctions. Robert and Charles Grant, sons, as we have seen of Charles Grant, the East India director, were third and fourth wranglers, and second and first chancellor's classical medalists, respectively. Martin, with whom language and literature were always the dearest study, soon afterwards won the first university prize for a Latin essay. Charles Grant received the second. In 1802, he was chosen fellow of St. John's, and did good work there as lecturer and examiner. Meanwhile, to him as to Simeon, Cambridge had been the place of a great spiritual change. It came not with observation. He was at first so careless of religion that he never thought of praying in private. So strong were his occasional bursts of passion that once, in the dining hall, he hurled a knife at a neighbour who had provoked him. It missed the man and stood trembling in the panel of the wall. But in his third year at college, the death of his father, a desolating grief, led him to think and pray. His sister's letters and her prayers were not in vain. He found his way to Trinity Church, and already before his degree he had quietly taken his place among those who owned Christ for Master. In October 1803 he was ordained at Ely on the title of his fellowship. Like Simeon, he was not yet of canonical age at his ordination. To Simeon he had been drawn, and Simeon to him, with a great depth and warmth of affection, and he served as curate at Trinity Church for nearly two years, taking charge also of the small parish in Lulworth, northwest of Cambridge. Simeon's heart was full of India at this time, and Martin had fallen in also with the memoir of David Brainerd, the saintly evangelist sixty years before of the Redmen of New England. In the end he felt and owned the call to a missionary life, and Simeon sent his name to the East India directors. The two friends each showed, in a different way, a noble faith and loyalty towards their lord, Martin in choosing what was then a far distant exile as the next step after his brilliant successes, Simeon in speeding the departure of a man so gifted for influence in Cambridge and to himself so dear. In July 1805, Martin sailed from England. Cambridge he had left in April. One of his last farewells was to the beautiful wilderness or fellow's garden of St. John's, where he had often enjoyed communion with God, and which his memory still hallows. He sailed with the fleet which carried to the Cape the soldiers who, in January 1806, wrested the colony from Holland for England. After the decisive fight, visiting the field, he was nearly killed while ministering at a dying man. Not till the next May did he land at Calcutta. There he saw Carey, and soon afterwards David Brown welcomed him to his house and his heart. He applied himself at once to the Hindustani, with immense diligence and all his native turn for language, and within a year he was on his way to a mastery which he afterwards proved in his Hindustani New Testament. From Calcutta he was transferred to Dinapore, up the Ganges, and there laboured diligently for the Europeans in the station and its large district, meanwhile studying Sanskrit, Persian and Arabic with all his might. In April 1809 he was moved to Cornpore. There, 
Captain Sherwood received him to a warm Christian fellowship, and Mrs. Sherwood, the authoress of many books which still delight the young, has recorded some of her memories of Henry Martin. Quote, I perfectly remember the figure of that simple-hearted and holy young man when he entered our bungalow. His features were not regular, but the expression was so luminous, so intellectual, so affectionate, so beaming with divine charity, that the outbeaming of his soul would attract the attention of every observer. There was a very decided air, too, of the gentleman about Mr. Martin, and a perfection of manners, which, from his extreme attention to all minute civilities, might seem almost inconsistent with the general bent of his thoughts on the most serious subjects. He was as remarkable for ease as for cheerfulness. End quote. A notice of Martin by Sir John Malcolm, written a few years later, may be quoted appropriately here. He describes him to Sir Gore Owsley, British ambassador in Persia, as Martin appeared at Bombay in 1811. Quote, the Reverend Mr. Martin, one of the clergymen of Bengal, is here on his way to the Gulf. His knowledge of Arabic is superior to that of any Englishman in India. He is altogether a very learned and cheerful man, but a great enthusiast in his holy calling. He will give you grace before and after dinner, and admonish such of your party as take the Lord's name in vain. But his good sense and great learning will delight you, whilst his constant cheerfulness will add to the hilarity of your party. End quote. At Cornpore, Finding himself well able to preach to the natives, Martin regularly gathered a crowd of beggars round his bungalow door and spoke to them of Christ. What followed directly we do not know, but a noble indirect result was the conversion of a Mohammedan gentleman, an official of the court of Oud, one of a group who on these occasions listened only to deride. After Martin's death he presented himself to Corrie for baptism, brought through the young padre's remembered words to the feet of his saviour. He exchanged a large income for a catechist's pay of 60 rupees a month, and in due time he received English orders. As his baptismal name, he had chosen Abdul Messe, bondman of Christ. I have in my keeping a miniature of his face painted by a native artist at Agra for Simeon. He was Martin's one Indian convert, and Martin never knew him. At Cornpore, the signs of inherited consumption began to tell upon the frail and always toiling man. He was to have come home on furlough, but the translator's and evangelist's ardour determined him instead to go on leave to Persia, there to improve to the utmost his Persian New Testament, which had been criticised at Calcutta. Its faults were not all Martins, but due very much to unfaithful and pedantic work by his blindly trusted Munshi, Sabbat, mistaken by Martin for a true convert. He preached a last sermon at Cornpore, beginning with a feeble voice but gathering strength as he proceeded, till he seemed like one inspired from on high, and then went down the river to Calcutta. There he met Thomason, lately come also from Cambridge and from Trinity Church. Quote, he is on his way to Arabia, Thomason wrote to Simeon. You know his genius and what gigantic strides he takes in everything. He has some great plan in his head, of which I am no competent judge. But, so far as I do understand it, the object is too great for one short life. End quote. About Easter, 1811, he arrived in Persia, at Bursha, and soon settled at Shiraz, the learned city. Here he read and translated, and invited and accepted discussion with the mullahs. Often, and by some always, he was treated with respect, as a learned Frank and a man unmistakably holy. But he was often also insulted and reproached. 
one day alone among the Muslim doctors, challenged to say what was his belief about Christ, he solemnly confessed the Godhead of his Lord. Was he the Creator or a creature? I replied, the Creator. Such a confession had never before been heard among them. You deserve to have your tongue burnt out for this, they said on another similar occasion. He writes that he feels unworthy of the honour of their disgust, and of the brickbats which the boys throw at me. In Sir Gore Usli, the ambassador at Ispahan, he found a sincere friend, and was allowed, through his introduction, to present his translation to the Shah. All this while the man, who was thus always at work and always shedding from his life the pure, unearthly brightness of his master's presence, carried about a heart faint with disappointed human love. In his Cambridge days he had won the heart of a lady worthy of even him, Lydia Grenfell. She was the daughter of an old Cornish house of which the next generation from one family gave wives to Charles Kingsley and James Anthony Froude. One of the most pathetic pages of Martin's brief history is his parting from Lydia Grenfell at Gurlin, August 10, 1805, when, as he was ministering at family worship to her and her mother, a messenger led a horse to the door and summoned him instantly to St. Hilary and to Falmouth for the unexpected sailing of the fleet. In letters scattered over his memoir and over its now scarce companion, his journals and letters, and, I may add, in some unpublished letters now by me, there is amply evidence to show how this intense and high affection went with him all through his Indian and Persian labours. It was never to be consummated. Miss Grenfell loved him, but she did not go out to him, for reasons not now fully known, but certainly not of her own making. The farewell at Gurlin was the last embrace. She long survived him, saintly, grave, always in earnest, gentle to others, to herself severe, and she never married. In 1812 it seemed as if it might be otherwise. He had been ill almost to death at Tebris, while Sir Gore and Lady Usley nursed him as a son. Recovering, he felt the thought of England and of Lydia come strongly over him. He would return by Constantinople and bring her back to India and to his beloved work. The leave was given and the coming announced to Simeon and to her, and on September 2nd he set out on horseback, accompanied only by eastern servants. One of them, the merciless Hassan, was in some sense in command of the party and hurried Martin beyond his little strength. They reached Tukat in Asia Minor, seventy miles south of the Black Sea, the place of Chrysostom's death fifteen centuries before, and at Tukat, October 16, 1812, either falling a sacrifice to the plague which then raged there, or sinking under that disorder which had so greatly reduced him, he surrendered his soul into the hands of his Redeemer, at the age of thirty-one. Over his grave, in 1813, a stone was placed by the English resident at Baghdad, Claudius Rich. But the spot was exposed to insult, and the coffin was at last removed to the garden of the American mission, where an obelisk now marks the site, inscribed in four languages. A few particulars of Martin's end were gleaned at Tukat by missionaries in 1830. He probably died at the post-house, cared for in some measure by Armenian Christians, and Hassan took his portmanteau to Constantinople. In the portmanteau was found, among other things, his diary, with its last entry written ten days before his death. October 6th. No horses to be had. 
I had an unexpected repose. I sat in the orchard and thought with sweet comfort and peace of my God. In solitude, my company, my friend and comforter. Oh, when shall time give place to eternity? When shall appear that new heavens and new earth wherein dwelleth righteousness? There, there shall in no wise enter anything that defileth, none of that wickedness which has made men worse than wild beasts, none of those corruptions which add still more to the miseries of mortality, shall be seen or heard of any more. The words are like the sweet and solemn echo of others written just eight years, only eight, before, the last sentences of that letter quoted above, in which he spoke of his exclusion from the pulpit at Truro. My plans of seclusion, in the woods at Lamaran, have proved visionary. Till yesterday, when I sat for some hours on a moss-grown rock, incessant invitations from my friends have kept me in constant motion. The places near Lamaran are very favourable for meditation, as I hear no sound but the whistling of the curlew and the rippling of the waves. But these scenes are passing away, and I from them. And let them pass. Vanity is written on everything under the sun, the time is hastening when we shall forget the creature entirely and be swallowed up in the love of God. Martin has been called the one heroic name which adorns the annals of the Church of England from the days of Elizabeth to our own. This is not so assuredly, but it is true that Martin shines with a peculiar luster in the catalogue of our saints and confessors, a man at once eminently holy and truly human, beautiful in the whole tone of his developed character, given up to the will and work of God, with an unpretending but entire surrender, and bending all the powers of a rare intellect upon the one thing he did. As regards mental calibre, it is certain that he was very much more than the extremely clever college competitor. Those who have a right to speak have assured me that Martin's linguistic work in Hindustani, the one language which he had time really to master, is the work of a philological genius, and that everything recorded in his missionary plans shows a lofty and far-reaching mind. His best-known portrait confirms the impression of intellectual greatness. It is the picture sent from Calcutta in 1812 to Simeon, who in a letter describes its arrival and how it was unpacked at the India house. I could not bear to look upon it, but turned away, covering my face, and, in spite of every effort to the contrary, crying aloud with anguish. E was with me, and all the bystanders said to her, That, I suppose, is his father. Shall I attempt to describe to you the veneration and the love with which I look at it? In seeing how much he is worn, I am constrained to call to my relief the thought in whose service he has worn himself so much, and this reconciles me to the idea of weakness, of sickness, or even, if God were so to appoint, of death itself. I behold in it all the mind of my beloved brother." As those words were written, Martin was dying at Tukat. The portrait was hung in Simeon's dining room over the fireplace. He used often to look at it in his friend's presence, and to say, as he did so with a peculiar loving emphasis, There, see that blessed man? What an expression of countenance! No one looks at me as he does. He never takes his eyes off me, and seems always to be saying, Be serious, be in earnest, don't trifle don't trifle. Then, smiling at the picture and gently bowing, he would add, and I won't trifle, I won't trifle. At the church missionary house is preserved a much earlier portrait. 
It shows the same face, but wearing an expression of almost boyish cheerfulness. I have in my charge a miniature, taken for Simeon just before Martin left England. It has the younger look, but the shadows of toil and sorrow are just coming over it. The Calcutta portrait is now placed, as Simeon's bequest, in the vestibule of the university library. Martin's memory is ever green in the hearts of English Christians. Thirty-two years ago I heard, and I still hear them, the thunders of applause with which his name was greeted from the galleries, when, in the Senate House, at a great university meeting held in support of Livingstone's African work, the late Bishop Wilberforce pronounced it in a passage of glowing eloquence. It is as familiar and as potent amongst us at this day, and now it is materially commemorated in the beautiful Martin Memorial Hall, raised, in 1887 close to Trinity Church, mainly by the efforts of Simeon's present successor there. Every Monday night, during the two winter terms, that hall is filled with a student audience, listening to some missionary visitor's personal report from the front, an audience which continually supplies new and ardent recruits to the missionary army. In the chancel of Trinity Church, above the tablet which Simeon placed there to Martin's memory, the visitor sees another like it, bearing the name of Thomas Thomason, and erected by his affectionate mother, E. Dornford. Thomason has been mentioned already as one of Simeon's early disciples and friends. He entered Magdalen in 1792 and was the fifth wrangler of 1796. From Magdalen he was invited to a fellowship at Queen's and afterwards made tutor there. In the year of his degree he was ordained and served as curate under Simeon till 1808, when he sailed for India. The friendship of the two men ripened into an endeared intimacy, and Thomason stood scarcely second to Martin in Simeon's heart. Nothing could be happier than their relations in the duties of the church. Thomason, with very considerable ability, was a tranquil but indefatigable worker in his ministry, and the two friends felt so strong together that Simeon, in 1796, undertook the curacy and charge of Stapleford, five miles away in the country, where Berridge had preached fifty years before, and they worked it as a sort of rural dependency of Trinity. At Shelford, close to Stapleford, Thomason lived in a pleasant house, through whose large garden flowed the stream of the Granta. Here Simeon would sometimes stay with him, and in that retirement they loved to study, pray, and write together, going out from it to visit the poor people of Stapleford. Simeon, always practical, organised a little society there as at Cambridge, and he also introduced straw-platting in the cottages to the lasting benefit of the villagers. In 1807 work had begun to tell severely upon him, and for several years he was an invalid to some degree. In particular, his power for public speaking was greatly reduced, Thomason was called to fill the large gaps thus left in the pulpit work and developed remarkable power as a preacher, with a style not precisely eloquent but full and rich. Simeon returned from an enforced absence and heard his curate preaching with a depth and power which struck him at once as remarkable and as new, and saw his great command over the congregation. Some incumbents, perhaps, would not have rejoiced without reserve, but Simeon knew no poor jealousy. Now I see why I have been withdrawn, he said, and gave God thanks. But the happy partnership was soon afterwards dissolved. Thomason felt within him a strong call to the heathen world, and Simeon bade him go. He said farewell in June 1808 
to his deeply sorrowing mother, Mrs. Dornford, Simeon's faithful Cambridge friend, and Simeon actually sailed with him some way down the channel. When at last he left the ship, he pursued Thomason at once with a letter, the first of a long and loving series. The wind has changed. Were it to blow hard, you would be driven back again. Shall I appear unkind, if I were to say I should be grieved to see you? Though I would not for a great deal have lost the opportunity of parting with you as I did, I would not willingly pass through it again. A few such scenes would speedily wear and enfeeble my nature. Yet I wish you not to be delayed on your voyage. The voyage ended in December with a narrow escape from shipwreck in the Bay of Bengal. Thomason, with his wife, was allowed to labour for God in India till 1827. Then his wife's ill health brought him home. She died on the voyage, and he, reaching England, undertook an English parish in his solitude. But he could not rest away from India and his translations. In 1828 he returned, resigning his church and his pension. But he reached India only to leave it again, quite broken down, and he died and was buried at Mauritius. Thomason was an admirable Orientalist, a wise and strong missionary, and a holy man. His young son, James, was sent home in 1814 to Simeon's care, and faithful care it was indeed. All the father came out in this man who had deliberately and resolutely chosen the then necessary celibacy of a fellowship that he might the better work for God at Cambridge. He met the ship in the Thames, he, quote, received the dear treasure, and set off for Cambridge with him. End quote. He resolved, quote, to steer the medium between excess of care and want of care. You may be assured we shall have a hundred eyes, whilst we shall seem to have only a dozen. Flannels will be ready to put on at a moment, but I think it better not to endanger the making him too tender. End quote. He soon took him to a private school, and in due time watched over his course at Haleybury with wise while yearning care letters of practical counsel to bishops, for they had begun to consult Simeon, and answers to anxious inquiries about the deep things of God are interspersed in the records of that time with eager words to this dear child of his heart. My beloved James, I have this moment, November 6, 1821, received a letter which greatly afflicts me. It is the monthly report in which the word quite is omitted, and even the word very is omitted, and nothing is said but regular and correct. Measure not your good behaviour by drams and scruples, but let the measure be full, pressed down and running over. Tell me, my beloved James, by an early post, that you are determined, by God's help, that if I open the next report with fear, I shall read it with joy. This will be a great comfort to the mind of your loving father in man's stead, and your anxious father in God's stead, C. Simeon. In the same year James Thomason returned to India, the future masterly lieutenant-governor of the Northwest, a Christian ruler worthy of both his fathers, the guide of other civilians, afterwards themselves eminent, in the art of administering India for its inhabitants and for God. When Thomas Thomason died, John Sargent, who was about to write his life, asked Simeon for a sketch of the character. I give the answer both for the sake of the subject and a passage of true literary beauty. Were I to compare him with anything, it would be with the light, in which a great diversity of rays are joined, but no one more conspicuous than another. 
Towards God he was distinguished by a simplicity of mind and purpose, and towards man by a placidity of manner and deportment. I never saw anything of self blended with his actions. He seemed to have one aim and end in all he did. And what he did was never by an effort so much as by a habit. In fact, every day with him, from morning till evening, was a kind of equable course, something like that of the sun in a Cambridge atmosphere. He gave a tempered light, never blazing forth with unusual splendor, but diffusing to all around him a chastened influence. Everything was done by him in its season, but in so quiet a way as not to attract any particular attention. There was an extraordinary resemblance between him and Mrs. Thomason. Each executed a great deal every day, but throughout the whole day, though there was much business, there was no bustle, no parade. Each lived only for the Lord, and to glorify Him seemed to be the one business of their lives. There was not a work of benevolence within their reach, but they engaged in it, just as if it had been a domestic duty. The space would fail me to tell the reader anything in detail of Simeon's other friends. Otherwise I might speak of Daniel Corrie, drawn to spiritual decision through Simeon's influence, and sent out by him to India in 1807, to labour as the bosom friend of Martin, Thomason, and Brown, and to die in 1837, worn out by his apostolic labours as first bishop of Madras, and of James Howe, the historian of Indian Christianity, and the second founder, after the Bohemian Lutheran Yenica, of the now large and flourishing missions of Tinnevelly, ordained at Carlisle in 1815, and led to dedicate himself to India through an accidental interview with Simeon at Scalaby Castle in Cumberland, and of Claudius Buchanan, the undutiful son of a Scottish schoolmaster, brought to the feet of Christ by a sermon of John Newton's, preached in St. Mary Woolnoth, sent to Cambridge by Newton's friend, Henry Thornton, one of the little group who listened to Simeon's chamber readings on revealed religion, appointed to an East Indian chaplaincy in 1796, and for twelve years the laborious and able missionary student and teacher, and the earnest advocate of Indian missions in the English press. Passing from the circle of Simeon's chaplains, and touching that of his friends in general, I might describe Sowerby, the senior wrangler of 1798, at first strongly prejudiced against Trinity Church and its minister, then persuaded to listen to a friend who offered to give him scripture proof that his judgment was mistaken. Then Thomason's colleague in Simeon's curacy, called early to rest after a bright devoted course. I might dwell on the beautiful memory of Henry Kirk White, the protégé of Robert Southey, welcomed to Cambridge by Simeon and Martin, but living only to begin his second year. His academical promise was brilliant, and the poverty of his family, much more than personal ambition, tempted him to overwork a delicate constitution. He died in his rooms at the age of twenty-one, October 1806, having already written his name on the roll of English Christian poets. I might enlarge with willing reverence on the character and work of James Scholarfield, already named Fellow of Trinity College, and, 1825 to 1853, Regis Professor of Greek, he was Simeon's curate for some years till 1823, and then vicar of St. Michael's till his death, an excellent Porsonian scholar and a still better Christian teacher as he ministered in his church to many undergraduate generations, showing them, by precept and example, how to search and unfold the scriptures and how to worship in spirit and truth. The honoured name of Charles Clayton might claim a more than passing mention, the active college tutor, 
and The Untiring Pastor and Fruitful Preacher, 1851-1867, in Simeon's Place. There he was succeeded by another of Simeon's late hearers and friends, Thomas Rawson Burke's Second Wrangler of 1834, and in his latter days, 1872-1883, Professor of Moral Philosophy, an acute and indefatigable thinker, profound student of scripture and pregnant teacher. And if I might speak at large of the living, I should have much to write of William Carus, fellow and dean of Trinity, Simeon's Mi Carisme, his friend, curate, biographer, and first successor, 1836-1851. to Still spared to the church in a bright and beautiful old age. But this long chapter must end, and it shall end with an extract in which a group of Simeon's earlier friends appear together in a picture of the clerical meetings of Shelford and Aspenden. The whole of the party, consisting sometimes from twenty to thirty persons, were accommodated on the spot and continued together two entire days, besides the days of arrival and departure. The clergy spent the mornings after breakfast in conference principally on the scriptures, Mr. Simeon presiding. A favourite book of his on these occasions was Warden's System of Revealed Religion, which contains a digest of revelation under separate heads, composed in the express words of Scripture. The passages were usually read, first as collected together, and then separately, in the Old and New Testaments, copies of the original being continually consulted. These conferences, divested as much as possible of stiffness, which was the more easily affected from the harmony and mutual confidence of the brotherly circle, were exceedingly delightful. God, being thus inquired after in his own word by those whose province it was to dispense it to others, the search after his will, being begun and ended with prayer, did assuredly manifest himself to them as he does not to the world. They have often said in words and oftener in their hearts, it is good for us to be here. While the clergy were thus employed, the ladies were in another room where they read together. At the hours of repast and in the evenings all met together. After tea there was usually some leading topic of conversation, letters also, or any religious intelligence, or schemes of usefulness likely to be generally acceptable, were then brought forward. This narrative will perhaps abate the fears of some persons, who have apprehended they scarcely know what lurking mischief from such unauthorized assemblies. If any such could have seen and heard, without being seen, they would happily have fallen upon their knees and confessed that God was in that place." they would at least have witnessed there what is recorded to have taken place in olden time, when they that feared the Lord spake often one to another, and the Lord hearkened and heard it, and a book of remembrance was written before him for them that feared the Lord and thought upon his name. Certainly not one of those who have been present at those seasons now repents, except of not having profited more from such opportunities. Never probably will some of them know more than they then experienced of the delight of the communion of saints, till they shall again meet with Martin and Jowett and Lowe and Thomason and Sargent and Simeon and Farish and Daniel Wilson and others whom we could name in heaven. These meetings were continued till 1817. Simeon himself writes after one such occasion, July 28, 1809, Oh, for more of that divine composure, that tender love, that heavenly ardour which animated the whole company. End of chapter 9